earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Are you in your car? At home? Elsewhere on your mobile device? Catching the podcast? Well, today is part three in our series, Faith's Fundamentals, Building a Solid Belief System. Part one was the God who reveals himself. Part two was the God who reveals himself as one, yet three. And today, part three is the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And friends, let's keep our foundational question fresh in our minds. Why does it matter that we understand the nature of God and therefore defend our belief in the doctrine of the Trinity? Remember, we framed this two other ways. What difference does it make? Or what's the big deal anyway? Well, many moons ago when I worked in the mainstream world in commercial advertising and marketing, a comment in the book Kingdoms in Conflict by the now late Chuck Colson grabbed me. The print media often intentionally distorts what we write. Over the years since I became a Christian, I have always deliberately explained that I have accepted Jesus Christ. These words are invariably translated to mean Colson's professed religious experience. I discovered that one major U.S. daily paper, as a matter of policy, will not print the two words, Jesus Christ, together. When combined, the editor says, it represents an editorial judgment. You see, friends, contrary to popular opinion, Jesus Christ is not a first and last name. Rather, Jesus and Christ, when paired together, form the most powerful two-word statement ever conceived. These two words, Jesus Christ, are a theological truth claim, and that's why the editor of that paper refused to print them together. Well, let's peel back the layers of the language onion and trace the significance of our English word Jesus and the powerful undertones it evokes to this day. The origin of Jesus goes back three languages, Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. Due to time constraints, we'll leapfrog over the Latin and go to the Hebrew and Greek, since they're primarily the biblical languages. The Hebrew original is rooted in the name Joshua, in other words, Yehoshua, from which springs the briefer form Yeshua. This is likely what Jesus' family called him. Imported into the Greek New Testament, then the equivalent is Iesos, since there's no J in the Greek alphabet. When brought into English, Iesos becomes Jesus. Well, I'm sure you're thinking, why is all this gobbledygook significant? Because Yeshua in Hebrew literally means Yah saves. In other words, the Lord saves or God saves. Even God is salvation. 
And friends, here's the ultimate trivia buffs conversation starter. Notice the meaning added to the angel's announcement in Jesus' birth account in Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Listen up now. Verse 20 and 21 say, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And let me interject here that the Holy Spirit is alive and well and distinct and working simultaneously at Jesus' birth. The angel goes on, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, Yeshua, because he will save his people from their sins. Friends, the angel names Jesus because it announces his mission. He will save his people from their sins. Ding, ding, ding. Remember, Jesus' Hebrew name means what? God saves, or God is salvation. It gets even cooler, friends. After the angel's instructions, Matthew adds an editorial comment in verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So friends, we now have two key names for Jesus, Yeshua and Emmanuel. Whereas Yeshua announces Jesus' mission, Emmanuel now announces his makeup. In other words, his nature. Jesus will be called God. God with us. And see how powerfully charged the name Jesus becomes? Now to fully understand the significance and undertones associated with our English word Christ, we must follow the same language trail. The English Christ is derived from the New Testament Greek word Christos. At Easter, the Greek greeting is Christos Anesti, Christ is risen. Christos is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Mashiach. Can you guess what English word comes from Mashiach? Bingo! Messiah! Friends, the meaning of both Hebrew and Greek words is anointed one. It carries some political overtones because an anointed one was often a king installed into power. And in the Hebrew religious system, priests and prophets were also anointed with oil. In the first century Roman Empire, emperors and Caesars were viewed as anointed ones, ordained to power by the gods and even accorded divinity. In fact, this underlies the conversation between Pilate and Jesus just before Jesus is sentenced to be crucified. In John 18, 33-38, let's read between the lines and listen for the power struggle. Pilate summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus then asked back, Is that your own idea, or did others talk to you about me? Pilate replied, Am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Pilate said, You are a king then. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. Pilate retorted, What is truth? Friends, 
Please read all of chapter 19, where I'll zero in on just five verses, 12 through 16. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Pilate asked, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. Can't you just sense the power brokering between the Jewish leaders and Pilate? And can you see how powerfully charged the name of Christ becomes? Perhaps now we realize that when we just say Jesus Christ, we're communicating a paragraph of information. Josh McDowell, former atheist and skeptic, said sometime, very interesting, what is it you can talk about God and nobody gets upset, but as soon as you mention Jesus... People often want to end the conversation. Why have men and women down through the ages been divided over the question, Who is Jesus? So, friends, the key question of the first century remains the key question of the 21st century. Jesus once asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Daniel Webster of Webster's Dictionary fame dined with a group of literary men in Boston. Their conversation soon turned to the subject of Christianity. Webster frankly stated his belief in the deity of Christ and his dependence upon the atonement of the Savior. One man asked, Mr. Webster, can you comprehend how Christ could be both God and man? Webster replied, No, sir, I cannot. If I could, he would be no greater than myself. I feel I need a superhuman Savior. Friends, Webster, like us, may not have been able to comprehend the triune nature of God, you know, the Trinity, but that didn't keep him from acknowledging the truth of it revealed in the Bible. And friends, the issue here is not our ability or inability to comprehend the Trinity. The issue is what is revealed to us in the inspired and authoritative Word of God. This is where the cults try and trip us up. We must be careful not to fall for their tactics or their faulty logic. One aberrant sect is notorious for arguing that the idea of the Trinity is contrary to human reason. In fact, their popular argument is, it doesn't make sense. Well, friends, let's field test the scriptures again. And today's field test contains four keys, I believe, are significant when investigating whether Jesus is in fact the God-man. In key number one, we'll continue our assessment of what Jesus said about himself and his Father. In key number two, we'll see the reactions to what Jesus said about himself from the Jewish religious leaders. In key number three, let's see some statements God the Father said about Jesus. And lastly, in key number four, we'll note how the biblical authors saw Jesus, particularly in relation to him being God. So, for key number one, what Jesus said about himself and his Father, 
Let's view John chapter 6. The full portion is verses 25 through 59, but let's zero in on some verses between 32 and 58. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the crowds, that is, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, friends, let me just interject here that Jesus is acknowledging he and the Father each have a will, and that he is carrying out the Father's will. John continues, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered, Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Shortly after, Jesus says, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Notice these pertinent statements made by Jesus. Both Father and Son have a distinct will of their own and act simultaneously. And Jesus is declaring his eternality. In other words, his eternal existence. Notice the present tense existence of both the Father and the Son. This is reinforced by the later statement, Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, here we have the living Father and the living Son existing simultaneously. A verse... A shared a prior program bears repeating John five seventeen. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And today I'll add verse nineteen. Very truly I tell you the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. What exactly is Jesus declaring here? Both his eternal existence and his connectedness and relationship of love to and with the Father. Therefore, Jesus and the Father coexist simultaneously. Now, friends, two verses that seem to trip people up are John 10.30, I and the Father are one, and John 14.9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. 
First, Jesus is saying, I and the Father are one, must be viewed through the same lens that revealed the Hebrew concept of oneness. The Apostle John, a Jewish man under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chooses the neuter gender of this word one. It's not masculine nor feminine, but neuter. So in the original New Testament Greek, Jesus actually says he and the Father are one in essence or in nature, not one in the same person. This marries perfectly with the Old Testament Hebrew concept of compound oneness versus indivisible oneness that we discussed in a prior program. We saw scriptures that pointed us to the realization that God is a compound oneness, not an indivisible or mathematical oneness, led by Deuteronomy 6.4. And the John 14.9 text, He who has seen me has seen the Father, when contextually interpreted, totally lines up with other corroborating statements by Jesus as to him and the Father working simultaneously and him cooperating with the Father in the work of redemption, like John 5.17 and 19 as mentioned. Friends, we could say that what Jesus meant behind his words might be this. Though my father often works invisibly, now you can see him working by watching me work. I and my father work together. Simultaneously, I might add. Now in key number two, the reactions to what Jesus said about himself, particularly from the Jewish leaders, are fascinating. A few examples will suffice. Oh, remember this statement of Jesus I quoted earlier, John five seventeen. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. The next verse, verse 18, records the reaction of the Jewish leaders. Had it not been for their reaction, we might get stuck figuring out what Jesus meant. But here it is. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, if this weren't enough, we have the added benefit of the New Testament Greek word behind our English word own. It means uniquely one's own, peculiar, personal. It differs from the standard possessive pronoun. We might say this verse this way. Jesus was calling God his very own peculiar, personal father, implying he was participating in the father's nature. Well, friends, let's re-examine John 10.30. I and the Father are one. This conversation begins at John 10.22 during the Feast of Dedication, and Jesus was walking around in the temple. It's likely the phrase the Jews refers to the Jewish leaders. They said to Jesus, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Well, he tells them he has told them plainly. But the conversation goes on, and then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. The next verses, verses 31 through 33, help us interpret this statement correctly, in context. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. Which of these are you stoning me for? We're not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. 
Key number three, what God the Father said about Jesus. Here the Hebrew backdrop is important. The backdrop is from Psalm 2, verses 2 and 6. The kings of the earth rise up and their rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now remember, anointed is the Hebrew word for Messiah. Verse 6 continues, I, the Lord, have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. As a messianic psalm, the king being installed and the anointed one is the Messiah, known to us now as the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Matthew three sixteen and 17, at Jesus' baptism, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Notice the simultaneous and distinct participation of all three members of the triune Godhead. Now, God also throws his two cents in in Hebrews 1, 5 through 8, saying in part, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father, or again I will be his father and he will be my son. Then in verse 8, God says, But about the son, he, God says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. Philippians 2, 9-11 tell us God's actions toward Jesus. God exalted him to the highest place and gave him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Here Paul quotes Isaiah 45:23, a reference to God himself, and he repeats it in Romans 14:11. Lastly, key number four, how the biblical authors saw Jesus in relation to him being God. Acts 2, 31 through 36 says, Seeing what was to come, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we're all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah." There's similar language in Luke 2.11. In Acts 10.36-39, Peter's speech to Cornelius' household includes this, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, because God was with him. Now, friends, let's put on first century sandals here. Culturally, the use of Lord in these above passages is a reference to God. Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. 
Finally, the writer of Hebrews says in 1, 2 through 4, In these last days God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his being, or nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Friends, all these statements can only be properly understood in faulty notions corrected by grasping Hebrew oneness and the compound oneness or unity of the triune Godhead. The Father is called God, the Son is called God, and we'll see next time the Holy Spirit is called God. We may admit, like Daniel Webster, that it's a difficult doctrine to comprehend how Christ could be both God and man, yet we must stand on the testimony of Scripture that reveals just that. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of this program. I hope our study equips us to be better understanding the fundamental doctrine of Jesus Christ. The perennial question just won't go away. In each age and each generation, we must answer the question, who do people say Jesus is? This doctrine is being eroded in our very church pulpits. More than ever, we must be students of God's word. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. Please also consider joining our support team. Ask for the details. Thanks to you who help keep this program on the air. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.